and thanks for tuning in to the Breast Cancer Action Podcast. Breast Cancer Action is not your average breast cancer organization, and this is not your average podcast. We're people-powered and we're fiercely independent, radical and compassionate. We never shy away from the hard truths. We bring you the facts and we tell it like it is about breast cancer and what you can do about it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Breast Cancer Action Podcast. My name is Jayla Burton, and I'm the program manager at Breast Cancer Action, and I'll be your host. In today's episode, we will be talking about the power and process of storytelling. Storytelling has been an instrumental piece in health education, culture shift work, and has been used as a rallying cry for united action. At Breast Cancer Action, we've used the power of storytelling to call for a systemic change, whether that's asking our community of activists to personalize their letters to representatives or testify at public hearings to demand better policy. It's my honor today to talk with our very own executive director, Dr. Crystal Redman, or as we refer to them as, KR, and also a longtime supporter and friend and author, Dina Taylor. KR is not only our fearless leader, but they are also a self-published author, adjunct professor at Emory School of Public Health, and they frequently engage in public speaking forums covering the topics of justice and liberation, public health, and reproductive justice. Dina is an author, copywriter, and humorist who has been published in Austin Woman Magazine and Fresh Yarn. She has also been recognized by Pint Awards, How, and Graphic Design USA. She wrote the book, I Don't Want to Be Pink, which was published in 2019, which tells her breast cancer story and illuminates much of her alignment with our organization. So stay tuned for this amazing conversation. Hi, KR. Thanks so much for joining the podcast today. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I appreciate this time. Yeah. I know that I always appreciate and value your insight and words because I get to work with you day in and day out. And so I'm really (laughs) always excited when I can bring that um, and have our listeners, you know, get a feel for, you know, some of the the thoughts that you have. So I just wanted to shed light on that before diving in. So getting right into the topic of storytelling, um, I know you have a lot of experience being a leader in a in different movement spaces. Um, So can you shed a little bit of light on how you've seen storytelling as an effective tool um, in other social movements and and how you think it can be used in the breast cancer movement as well? Sure. Um, I really think this is an important topic um, because very often we don't really think about stories as parts of um, data or a narrative around data and such. But storytelling definitely paints a picture, especially for folks who don't have aligned lived experiences, right? So um, it allows for um, folks um, with different lived experiences to just um, express that and give it power. Uh, Storytelling in itself is just a a powerful movement, right? It's the way in which you build movement, build connection, build relationship, and also build power, right? Um, And and foster collective power um, between um, communities um, and between different movements and such. So I really like this opportunity to uplift 
some of the use of storytelling um, in just different social justice movements. So as you alluded to in your introduction, I also lead a reproductive justice organization as well and I'm a part of the reproductive justice movement. And in that we see storytelling as being that vehicle of power, being sure that our lived experiences stay alive, right? And it's used to organize people, to mobilize folks, to shift policy, to um, uh, shift culture, break down stigma. And it's used as a, a stepping stone to getting to liberation and freedom. You know, there's all this conversation about critical race theory and, you know, should we speak about this and should we speak about that and such, uh, which is ridiculous. But, you know, with storytelling, that's, you know, when we think about quote unquote theory, um, and we think about the longevity of theory and bringing up our history and things of that nature, it's so easily erased by policy. It's so easily erased by legislation and, and um, you know, by how uh, a group of people feel about being held accountable, right? And our stories allow us not even just to live and step in our truth and our power, but it also allows um, for longevity of life within those stories, right? As long as we continue to tell and uplift those stories, we have power, right? And who can stand against that, right? We keep saying our truth. Um, we mobilize people around, around that. We organize people around that and uh, continue to shift and build power in a way that we hope to build long-term sustainable change. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I, I want to dive a little bit into how storytelling, I know specifically like in the breast cancer movement, it's been used a lot. There's so many people that have been touched and affected by this disease. People assign female at birth, as well as people that identify as gender non-binary or gender non-conforming. And it is important to know that these folks have stories as well. We have a podcast that we published um, about a year ago about the lived experiences of, of people, you know, that are of different marginalized groups and how their realities are being uplifted. But specifically, I know one of the things within my time at Breast Cancer Action and just within this breast cancer movement, one of the things that I've seen kind of shift and change is is the the story behind going flat, for example. So, you know, when, when people get, you know, treatment or surgery or reconstruction um, or when women go through the process of having a mastectomy and then they're deciding if they would like to do reconstruction or not, it's very normalized to just automatically opt in to reconstruction. But there is this big movement that was kind of built, I think, with the foundation of, of people sharing their stories about their, their relationship with their breasts and if they wanted to have reconstruction or opt in for, for going flat. And so I think those narratives has, have also shed a little bit of light in terms of what people want personally for themselves. And then also where we need to have policy implemented so that our care providers are informing people of the options that they have prior to going into procedures like this. Um, I know that you also uh, spoke a little bit to story sharing as lived experiences and, and real data. And I've had the distinct honor of hearing you talk about that a lot within um, our work. I know we're also in this, this era of reshaping our um, strategic plan, and that's one of the things that's at the center of it. So with, with all of that information, um, KR, I would 
love for you to speak a little bit more to how story sharing can actually uplift um, lived experiences as real data. Absolutely. So you mentioned um, the going flat movement, and I really wanted to shed a little bit more light onto that. Um, So folks have shared their stories about the journeys through, as you said, treatment and surgery. And within these stories are realities of patients not feeling as if they were given full informed consent prior to certain medical procedures. They weren't made aware of the potential harm, such as, you know, um, within like Um, obtaining breast implants, right? And not only have these narratives shined a light on the different experiences that folks have had, but it has also illuminated areas where we need policy change. Um, So, you know, storytelling is used as a tool essentially to um, not just shift policy, as I mentioned before, but essentially systemic change um, in the ways in which we navigate uh, the medical industrial complex or, you know, um, treatment and surgeries and things of that nature. Um, so I really wanted to just shed a, a little bit light into that first regarding uh, storytelling. So as you named, storytelling can absolutely be used to uplift lived experiences and seen as real data. Um, essentially, most discussions regarding the roles of patient advocate, advocate excuse me, are premised on the notion that the data-driven, evidence-based, scientific viewpoint is complemented by a non-scientific and passionate viewpoint from patient advocates. At best, this assumption is limited, and at worst, it is grossly inaccurate. Patient advocates essentially absolutely bring a scientific viewpoint to the table. And that's something I want to make sure I say very clearly again, our patient advocates bring a scientific viewpoint to the table. These things are not mutually exclusive, right? These things exist together. Um, our our um, ex- lived experiences, our data, that is science. It is a scientific viewpoint. I love to call it qualitative data, you know, and, and as I was saying, the lived experiences of these advocates constitute real world data, Uh, in addition to a deep interest and motivation in addressing and eliminating breast cancer. To put it differently, healthcare workers and researchers bring perception while patient advocates bring perspective. Yeah, I love the way that you put that very eloquent. Um, I I definitely agree. And it's, it's, there's so many different areas in the policy world where we see a lack of representation of of patient advocates and activists um, at the table, um, for sure. I know that's one of the reasons that, you know, within all of the actions that we do, um, we really encourage people. And I'm not sure if any of our listeners have taken action on um, using our action tool that we have on any of the uh, pressing things um, going on right now. But we do encourage people to personalize and customize their stories, um, whether that's if you've had breast cancer, you know someone that's had it, or you have, you know, a compelling story. Um, because a lot of the times, like you said, it's it's the healthcare workers and researchers that are bringing perception, the patient advocates that are bringing perspective, and it's our leaders that are implementing policy. And so there's all of these different avenues. Um, and I don't think, like you said, they can exist without each other if we want kind of the best policy that that, that we can have um, for and the most effective thing that we could have that is at the center of the people um, that the policies are meant to serve. I was wondering, I know um, you t- spoke a little bit about in your first response, the 
different communities um, that have, you know, in like reproductive justice movement, um, use storytelling. And I was wondering how can storytelling center people that have the furthest proximity of power? Um, and is there anything within that that can be leveraged? Yeah, my first thought is we accept, not allow, but we accept that folks within the furthest proximity to power tell their stories. Like we don't tell their stories for them. You know, I think that sometimes the narrative is shifted. Like we like our society feels like that, of course, folks who have traditionally sat in seats of power, you know, like cis het, white folks, femmes, et cetera, have traditionally white, you know, straight men, et cetera, right? Had this narrative of power and um, and the stories or the things that they say, and that's what we use as truth. And that's what we run with, with data and science and research and all these different things, right? For instance, like, uh, we had posted something in February around Henrietta um, Lacks, right? And her experiences as a Black woman who, till this day, uh, her cells are being used for experimentation and science and the reason why we have deep roots in, you know, even um, science around breast cancer and other things, right? But we wouldn't know that without people telling that story. And do we think that people within seats of power were the ones willing to tell that story? No, because they have profited off of this person's story, right? But it takes folks who traditionally and currently are not in seats of power, are not in positions of power. So, you know, um, BIPOC folks, Black, Indigenous, people of color, folks with disabilities, queer folks, folks that um, have uh, limited access to resources and funds and et cetera, right? Like um, our folks are not in traditionally seen as having power in their stories, right? Or seen as their lived experiences as something that is factual or data driven. And I think that one of the ways in which we shift that power dynamics is listening to people, right? Um, being okay with dismantling where your privilege is and in your positionality and being okay with not being centered, right? I think that's where a lot of friction is that folks are like, wait, if we don't talk about my experience, then where am I in this narrative? And it's like, you've always traditionally been in the center of this narrative. Like it is not the people who sit within the furthest distance to power to like, coddle and make folks feel okay that they're not in the center, right? Because essentially, if we center those um, within, within the furthest proximities to power, then we're all being centered, right? Like, if we center those who are the most oppressed, whose stories have been uh, suppressed, then we all, all of our stories exist, right? Um, you know, um, making sure that we're uh, being intentionally inclusive to include um, those communities. And I think that um, now one of the, the tools we can use is, I mean, now everyone, mostly everyone, if you have access to um, media or Wi-Fi or, you know, a smartphone or something like that has access to telling their stories. Like, you know, there's so many things in this world that we would not be aware of if someone didn't just, you know, take out a camera or, you know, get on Instagram or any platform of social media. And um, because of those stories that are being documented through media, uh, folks are being held accountable, right? Like culture is shifting. People are being made aware. And, you know, I think about we're still very much in COVID, but in 20, oh goodness, what year are we in? Um, in 2020, when COVID was just, you know, uh, wrecking havoc over our lives, uh, we also had this large magnification 
of racial injustices, it wasn't new, right? I, like it was magnified on a larger platform and more people were able to um, actually pay attention to this. And, and we just had this, this national and international um, you know, social kind of reckoning around anti-Black racism and et cetera, right? Um, and a lot of the things that continue to be done historically and currently to Black and Brown people. That was all storytelling, you know, because of the stories that were told, because of those lived experiences and the um, centering around, you know, unfortunately the trauma and such, that people began to mobilize and organize and essentially shift culture and power. And that's exactly, you know, a, a magnified example of storytelling, but storytelling essentially provides that insight into how we might approach systemic problems and create disruptive solutions toward the goal of living healthy and liberated lives. And historically, there is a lack of representation, as I said, regarding who essentially is centered in these narratives, but also that rolls into science, like who essentially is centered in science. What what do the bodies look like that we're talking about when we talk about research? We're not talking about like, you know, every now and then you see, you know, research around, you know, a variety of different ethnic groups and different races. Um, but we really don't get to uh, some of the roots of what that truly looks like. We speak about race, but not racism. Right. Um, we speak about, you know, age dynamics of adolescents and, um, you know, folks who are older. But are we really like capturing all the age gaps within that? Right. Are we really, truly speaking about sexual identities most um, and gender identities? Most of science is really with the baseline of cishet folks, right? Cishet white folks, like that is the baseline of science. And now, you know, you see ripples of, you know, intentionality around being more inclusive and intentional around, you know, different groups and such, but like how much data is out there in science that is led and driven and centering on trans folks? Not very much, right? Um, or, or funds that are given to folks that, you know, essentially have been left out of this lens of science for them to lead their own research and tell their own stories, right? And essentially that would help build trust between the scientific and research community and communities who have been under-resourced and um, aren't really listened to very often. Yeah, that's uh, that's definitely an excellent connection I think that you've made to kind of the reckoning that we were having um, in 2020 and I also kind of want to tie it back into some of the things that I've noticed like historically within the breast cancer movement which is you know this idea of who has traditionally been at the center of the narrative and and within breast cancer um, it's been you know the people that have kind of survived and you know are living with breast cancer to this day. Um, but I know that there was a time where, you know, if, you know, someone had a breast cancer that had metastasized or spread to different parts of the body, they're, they, you know, they were kind of taken out of the limelight because that was too much of a harsh reality that wasn't palatable um, for people or didn't feed into this idea of a hope or happy endings. And so a lot of, you know, those folks, um, their stories were oppressed and suppressed throughout, you know, the history of, of the breast cancer movement as well. So yeah, thank you for, for sharing sharing that um, and connecting all of the dots for us. And so my last question is, you know, when we are participating in storytelling, um, what are ways that we can ensure that we're doing so ethically? 
Yeah, you know, one of the things is thinking about how we use stories, right? Do we have permission to use these like folks' stories? Are we leading with trauma, you know, and is it our trauma experience to share? Yes or no? Like, you know, that's an easy question to ask ourselves, you know, and consent, right? Um, But also, as I said before in our conversation, um, giving space for folks to share their own stories and step into their power and, you know, Um, That's the way we build, you know, collective power and begin to build trust um, and honor folks' experiences and stories, right? And they tell the stories the way they want to tell the stories, you know, and then following through with that by building relationships and assuring that you have, again, consent to continue to share those stories, especially as it relates to uplifting these stories as data. Um, I think that's a good way also to um, use the stories to build power as opposed to existing as a story. Just, I mean, there is power in a story, but also making sure that we honor the story in a way that can use it to shift and build things, right? As I said before, to mobilize and, and organize people or create opportunities for systemic change or policy shifts um, or cultural and um, shifts and stigma. So as long as we have, there's intent and impact, we may have intentionality about how we hope to use these stories, but then if it's not done right, the impact can be very harmful. Um, And then I think that we let advocates and folks in community lead, you know, um, yes, you know, at Breast Cancer Action, we're an advocate organization. Like we are, you know, here to center communities and people and their uh, stories and experiences and all that we do. And also, you know, in doing so, um, creating a platform for the folks to actually, with those lived experiences, tell their stories. So I think that's um, probably my little two cents about how we can make sure to participate in storytelling um, and not be harmful. Excellent. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, It's been a wonderful podcast. You know, I had the opportunity to talk with Dina who shared her story through her avenue of sharing her story was through her book, um, which had a lot of humor and realness, but also was very critical of the pink ribbon. Um, And so I think that you know, I, I want to echo your sentiments, um, KR, and, and share that also, you know, if people don't want to share their stories, that's also a very real, that's mm-hmm. also, that's also story sh- sharing in a sense as well. Um, and, and giving those people the autonomy and freedom to do that as well. But thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. This has been a lovely conversation. And I hope that we can continue to, you know, make these really impactful um, changes through storytelling and action in, in all the ways that we have done historically and continue to do in the future. Wonderful. Thank you for having me. Hi, Dina. Thanks so much for joining the Breast Cancer Action Podcast today. We are so happy to have you here with us. Welcome. Hi, thank you so much. I'm very honored to be here. Today, we've covered how storytelling documents our histories, translates our lived experiences into real data, and how to ethically engage in sharing personal narratives for political change. So Dina, before we get into the process and platform in which you've decided to share your experience with breast cancer, can you talk a little bit about what it was like for you to navigate a new diagnosis? 
Yeah, okay. So at the age of uh, 36, I was living in Seattle and literally days away from uh, moving to Austin, Texas, when a routine mammogram showed something um, abnormal in my left breast. And it turned out to be a scare, but what was there is called atypical ductal hypoplasia. And that did put me at a higher risk for developing breast cancer. So um, at the time I was offered to go on tamoxifen, but knowing some of the side effects uh, were like going through menopause and I was only 36, I declined and uh, just had them remove it via an excisional biopsy and then um, carried on with my life and moved to Austin. I was monitored for two years, I had, which means I would go in and get images taken every six months. And then once that was completed and I was able to go back on an annual mammogram schedule, I was found to have a cancerous tumor in the opposite breast, which launched the entire experience of getting a bilateral mastectomy, uh, chemo was recommended, and I had reconstruction and um, five years of tamoxifen. Thank you so much for sharing that, Dina. I know that I have had the opportunity to read your book, I Don't Want to Be Pink, um, which I found to be very interesting in terms of how you navigated career, personal life, um, all of these nuanced things that a lot of people probably don't think about when you think of breast cancer or, or typically people that, you know, haven't had to have that experience have thought about. So I did want to ask you, when did you decide to tell your story in a book format and what was it like to write your cancer story? Being a writer and a you know, journaler since childhood, uh, the first thing I did as a coping mechanism was to just go to a Word document for an outlet. Mm -hmm. So that was greatly comforting to me personally. It was something I was, would do regardless. And then maybe because I'm a writer or because it was a way, it was a cathartic exercise, I decided to start giving structure to some of my thoughts. And initially the idea was to write a collection of essays where you might drop into a part of the cancer process with humor, which is very much my style um, in the way, a, a coping mechanism for me. So that's kind of my initial thoughts. I didn't know that I would actually pursue publishing until I was kind of looking toward the last few chemo treatments and actually seeing a light at the end of the tunnel. I was getting a, a good prognosis. Anyway, and I was starting to make plans like, you know, X months out of chemo, I might go on a trip or something like that. So that made me feel uh, stronger and a little bit more in control. Mm. And I thought, you know, maybe I'll seek out the help of a developmental editor and see what they think of this idea. And um, I ended up investing in some resources some writing resources. And then over a very long period of time, went from this collection of essay ideas into a chronological story that was probably too lighthearted in the beginning. And then I stopped in the middle of the writing process and sought out another professional 
she specializes in memoirs and she she guided me in going much 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 deeper and being way more vulnerable and less jokey and made it a much better book and then I reached a point at which I was ready to publish in uh 2019. What a journey yeah I, I feel like there's a flurry of resources at people's disposal that kind of gets shoved and shoved um, at them when, when, you know, these sort of things happen. However, I feel like there's not as many stories or resources that kind of give people's reality of, of what it is that is going on. I know, I, I don't know if you've read Dina, the cancer journals by Audre Lorde, ever, or if that was even on your radar at the time, but it's a very tiny book, but there are these excerpts in there just about like what she's experienced. And some of them are chronological and some of them tell a story, but mostly it it tells her experience and her raw feeling in the moment of when she was, you know, making certain decisions that she needed to make or didn't want to make um, throughout her experience. So um, I want to ask you, um, had there been more integration of personal stories in all of the resources and kind of things that were thrown at you when you first were diagnosed, do you think that would have helped you in any way? And in what way do you want your book to help or just be a resource to others? Well, it's, let's see, it's it's a little challenging. So the resources in the heat of the moment are, here's a support center that you can go to locally. Here is some facts about treatment and how to make treatment choices. So very um, medically focused. And those, that was, that was overwhelming, but also helpful because I needed to make decisions. I felt self-imposed with a little guidance from my surgeon um, to make them within, you know, roughly a month of time to get that tumor out of there and and start moving forward. Mm. So those resources were welcome. As far as personal patient stories, um, because I opted to not go a support group route, I found myself looking for stories that resonated with me on my own and when you're already overwhelmed in your emotional, um, not a lot of time went into those, to that research, in, not in the beginning. So as far as the usefulness of stories, it's tricky. But I think if they were targeted to my specific situation, and not that anything was going to be an exact match, but those would have been helpful. And by targeted to my particulars, I mean a single woman who was interested in dating and uh, freelancing. I, I was my only source of income and I'm not a particularly religious person. So there were many stories out there about um, that had kind of a spiritual aspect to it that I, that didn't resonate with me. So I eventually kind of found some blogs or viewpoints on patient forums that kind of piecemeal felt, a little bit like my story. And so I, I did seek those out and I eventually read those. And then I found a book called um, Cancer Made Me a Shallower Person, which had sort of this dark humor to it that completely resonated with me. So I, I got that right away. And then there was another book, the name's escaping me right now, but it was also a great resource because it was done in such a completely 
fresh, proactive way about, yeah, this, this horrible thing exists, but here's how you can take control moving forward via lifestyle. So clean cosmetics and um, diet and, and things like that. So those things resonated with me, but I did have to research them on their own. And I, it, it would be quite a task to filter and make uh, targeted stories available. Like you'd have to have a big database, mm-hmm. you know, for to make that accessible to patients that meets every single one of theirs. So I, I'm not implying that that should be, um, that that would be something easy to do. But um, back to your original question. Yeah. If, if, if there's some stories that resonated with me early on, um, that would have been comforting for sure. How do you imagine or, or see your book, um, I Don't Want to Be Pink, as a resource um, for people that are in their early stages of navigating um, a new diagnosis? I think that I wrote a story that I would have liked to have read. And so for those that have similar elements to my story, I would hope that it would um, provide comfort. And then also, I have a I have this sense of humor that I have. It can be kind of dark. It can be uh, playful. And it, it's very much my coping mechanism. And I would hope that if there are other people out there who find, you know, that humor comforting and uh, something relatable, that they're not alone and that there are parts of going through a cancer experience and treatment that are so uncomfortable mm-hmm that this is a way to comfort, like call it what it is, like having this thing sticking out of your chest with these toxic chemicals going in your body. Um, there, there are ways you can laugh at that to connect and to find comfort in just calling it what it is. And so um, I would hope that it's uh, enlightening in one aspect, but also comforting for patients who are just having to make all these decisions and especially single people who are, still hoping to find a relationship or go on a date or whatever with a body that's going to be altered um, and possibly lifestyle changes and, and treat and, you know, ongoing treatment like tamoxifen or something like that. I did want to talk a little bit about um, your relationship to the pink ribbon, how that started off and how it has evolved um, and kind of what you see the pink ribbon as now. So, Initially, back in the day before my mother had breast cancer and I was a younger person, I participated in a few walks and and it was a symbol of something scary that happened. Um, I also got the emotional appeal of it, that it, it was a symbol of hope and um, awareness. And then fast forward when... I started to see it represented, particularly in October, Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And I would see it on pink guns for sale mm. and pink garbage cans and things that just made zero sense to me. So, so while I completely respect and appreciate the meaningfulness that it has for a lot of people. Um, for me personally, it does not resonate. It has been so compromised and diluted um, via marketing and this exploitation that, and on things that do not <laughs> support 
say a healthy lifestyle, for example, or keeping chemicals out of things. It, 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 it's being used in a way that is so contradictory that um, it doesn't work for me personally. So I don't subscribe to it. I don't identify with it. But, it, but like I said, it's pretty tricky because it means it, it symbolizes a lot for a lot of people. So it's kind of that's something that I, I definitely grappled with in writing the book and in my experience, because when I was diagnosed, there were people who sent me things, you know, like a lapel pin that was a pink ribbon or things like that. So I kind of looked, considered the meaning behind it and the thoughtfulness behind it. And I appreciated that. But for me personally, um, it, it doesn't resonate. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And so I know how you came to know um, breast cancer action, um, but I would love for you to share that with all of our listeners today and what values alignment that you have with our organization. And the, the thing that stuck, sticks out most to me is, is your relationship that you have to the pink ribbon, because that's a large part of our work. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure everyone would love to know how you came to know um, and to be involved with our organization. Yeah, so I um, I think initially there's two parts to it. Um, one was when I was nearing the end of treatment as, as far as chemo, um, I was looking for ways to how can I mitigate recurrence, the chance of recurrence from a lifestyle standpoint. And one of them was getting toxins out of my, you know, what do I put on my body? So getting toxins out of cosmetics and moisturizers and all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So that led me to the environmental working group, which led me to the uh, safe cosmetics uh, database and where I breast cancer action kind of came to light. So it was somewhere in there. And then that component combined with breast cancer awareness month and seeing these pink ribbons on these ridiculous things just all over the place and in the grocery store everywhere I turned (laughs) and it wasn't there was something off it was so it was just so diluted and appearing on anything and everything that I started noticing articles and blogs and at the time when I was on Twitter posts around it and I started reading those to try to understand what other people were saying that really I connected to like there's a problem with this pink washing and you can't just slap, slap this on, you know, a, a gas card or a gun for goodness sakes. And so that then breast cancer action, the, the term started to arise with the, the term of pink washing. And then the thing before you pink campaign really, really brought it home to me that, I completely connected with it and I wanted to be a part of that. And then maybe the even going even deeper as I learned more about the work that you do was um, things like fracking, like the environmental factors that are related to breast cancer. Like there are patients who have zero history of breast cancer in their families and yet they're getting breast cancer at really early ages. So what else could it be? And the work that you do there completely resonated. And then as I've gone deeper, I'm learning that you do a lot more in addition to the things that I mentioned as far as like health justice and all that. And um, so I'm completely on board. Um, I get it. There's more for me to learn, definitely. And that's why I support the organization and I will stay connected to it as long as I live. 
Thank you so much, Dina, for sharing how you came to our organization. And I really like how you mentioned um, such an emphasis on action, which is something that we definitely strive for throughout all of our um, programmatic priorities that we have. And encourage people to use their stories as they feel is appropriate or as they feel comfortable to really change, to make changes on a federal level with policy, state level, local level, and even calling out the corporations that are involved in pink ribbon marketing um, that really distracts away from all of the, the deeper things that we are trying to achieve within this movement. So do you have any advice for people that are sharing their story with the intention and with the hope of moving the needle on some of these bigger picture things that we are are trying to achieve um, as a collective? Um, Starting with the very personal, like, patient perspective, the internal grappling with having this diagnosis, I highly encourage just journaling as a way to to process and get the noise out of one's head so that it can create some mind share and as far as uh, making really important treatment decisions and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. So that's just kind of a basic and that can be extremely private and it probably should be in the beginning. So that's kind of a therapeutic approach that I strongly encourage people try, even if they're not into writing, just, just, you know, words on a page, just get it out of your head. And then as far as sharing the story, if somebody is comfortable, um, it is definitely their choice, but if they are comfortable, um, you can start organizing those, those thoughts on the page. Maybe they share it with uh, loved ones, family members, and, you know, or, or a blog post or a social media post. Um, it could be little fragments, little bits. And if that also, if that feels comfortable or um, it makes them feel like they're, you know, advocating, they're controlling their narrative, they are uh, connecting, they're starting to connect with people by getting responses, um, then kind of going to the next step. I think that's, that's a wonderful thing to share personal stories because they, they will, you know, there will always inevitably be, unfortunately, and inevitably people will relate to it. There'll be another patient or somewhere else or someone whose family has been affected by someone they know who has breast cancer. So yeah, then we, then you connect with others. You look at like, what are, what are the causes? What can be done? What, what is the next step? Like pretty much everybody knows about breast cancer. to a point, right? To a point that we're the awareness thing has been done. Let's let's go to the next step. And how do we actually prevent it from happening in the first place? And that's where I think stories will connect with other people, especially ones like I was I mentioned earlier, where there's no history of breast cancer in a family. Then why did why did this person get this in their their twenties or their thirties or whatever. And let's dig a little bit deeper. You have uh, an organization like breast cancer action and um, that kind of backs that up with, you know, the facts and the research and the actual policy drives uh, to make changes and things like that. And so, yeah, it's a collective of unique stories that have these common threads um, can be quite powerful and 
and like you said, could actually start moving the needle and making some changes. Yeah. Connection of unique stories with common threads. I, I really like that. Well, thank you so much, Dina. I do want to give you an opportunity to let everyone know where they can find your book and how they can stay connected with you. Yes. Thank you so much. Um, I have a website. It's www.dinataylor.com. Um, it has information on my book and uh, people can email me at dina at dinataylor.com if they would like. I am also on Instagram. So those are the kind of the two key uh, online resources. And then my book uh, is available in ebook, print, and most recently, just uh, as of December, um, I recorded and published the audiobook version. Yay. Uh, yeah, it was <laughs> it was quite an experience um, with the Jack Straw Cultural Center in Seattle recording studios. So that was a huge ende- endeavor. And I did it because I wanted patients to have a choice of the format that was most comfortable for them. So now all the formats are out there and they're available pretty much wherever books are sold. I don't want to call out any one specific resource, but if you look for it, you will find it in those formats. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Gina. It was great having you on today. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in today. If you'd like to get more engaged with our work by sharing your story toward the goal of political change, you can let us know and we'll plug you in. Until next time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Breast Cancer Action Podcast. All of our podcasts are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. Give us a five-star review and be sure to subscribe. We want to hear from you. Tell us your stories. Share your questions. Let us know who you want to hear from and who we should invite as a guest on the show. You can share your ideas by emailing info at bcaction.org or reaching out on Facebook or Twitter. While you're there, sign up for the emails to get the latest on all the rest of Breast Cancer Action's work. And if you value what you heard today, please support our work by donating on our website, bcaction.org, because together we can do something besides worry.